You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Rekindling the Reformation, Episode 5, with Walter Feit. This evening we're going to deal with Part 2 of They Have Made Void Thy Law. You will remember that in the first one we set the general pace and we looked at the inversion of Genesis 1 and we looked at the basis for the morality of changing the law and we saw that the papacy had natural law theory as the basis for its so-called reason to change God's law which God says in his word is immutable and unchangeable. So this is quite an interesting thing. Now, if you think about the war between good and evil, then it is obvious that Satan hates everything about God. And particularly, he hates God's law. Because that is why he was driven from heaven. Surely, he was driven from heaven for disobedience and for disregard to God's law. And he has tried to instill that in mankind ever since. And if you go into the occult and Satanism, which is directly the worship of, of Lucifer, then do what thou wilt is the whole of the law is their common practice. The law of God must be negated and the law of chaos placed in its place. Now, Satan hates God's law, and so tonight we want to look at God's law. We know that Roman Catholicism changed it, but he wants to negate it completely. Psalms 119, verse 126, you remember it said, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. So when is God going to react? When his law is made void. So maybe it would be interesting to see how far down the line are we when it comes to the negation of God's law. Isaiah 24 verse 5, The earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. For 6,000 years we've had this morality on this planet, at least in some form or fashion, and now all of a sudden everything must be turned topsy-turvy. So I want to go through the Ten Commandments tonight and see what they have done to the law of God. Now, the Bible says, when they have made void thy law, does this mean that people have a disregard for that law? No. Well, then the end should have come long ago because people have disregard for God's law no matter whether, where you are. This obviously means when they officially remove God's law from society, then God will act. In other words, if legislation comes into conflict with God's law, then we have a problem. 
we are encouraged to obey the civil powers and uh, that is good citizenship. But when civil power comes into conflict with God's law, then God's law is higher than civil power. Where do we have examples of this in the Bible? Well, all through the Bible. Let's, let's take the classic examples. Nebuchadnezzar makes a law and he says, You will bow down. And what did Daniel's three friends have to say to that? Our God is able to save us. But even if he does not, we will not bow down. Why not? Because there's a commandment which says, Thou shalt not make for yourself an idol and thou shalt not bow down to it. So they were going to place God's law higher than civil legislation in spite of the possible penalty. Now the first commandment of God reads, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Has this law been tampered with? Well, we're not going to look at the Roman Catholic version tonight. We're going to look at international law and see whether this law has been made void. Here is the 1983 issue of The Humanist, and it says, I'm convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers of a new faith, a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. We are evolving towards divinity. That's what humanism teaches. Of course, the Bible teaches that there is only one God. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preacher. For they will be ministers of another sort utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. The classroom must and will become an arena for conflict between the old and the new. Now, I've been in the education system most of my life, and I have seen this change, and I've seen the turmoil that it has caused. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism, resplendent in its promise, of a world in which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. It will undoubtedly be a long, arduous, painful struggle replete with much sorrow and many tears. But humanism will emerge triumphant. It must if the family of humankind is to survive. Fascinating. You see, we cannot afford in our society today to have superiority of one religion over another religion. There must be a universal soup religion where all flow together in one homogenized religion. 
Otherwise, we will always have the basis for conflict. This is their reasoning. And their reasoning is not unreasonable. It's just wrong. <laughs> That's all. Because what if there is only one religion? Then you have a problem. What if the Bible is right when it says, There is no other name under heaven and earth whereby you may be saved except the name Christ Jesus. What if it is right? Well, then it's just a statement of fact and not unreasonable to say that the one is better than the other. Did you know that the Bible predicts precisely when the Messiah would come? That the Bible is so precise about this issue that whole religious systems negate it and push it aside and even forbid its study lest one should discover the Messiah? And so this is a very important question. What does legislation do these days with the first commandment? Is there a law in the world which is called hate speech? Yes or no? Yes. And one of the parameters of hate speech is to say that one religion is superior to another. And in the school systems, that which we have read, is it being implemented? Has it been implemented by legislation? Or is the status quo of the old system still in vogue? The new system is in vogue. What must children be taught in our school systems? There is no longer such a thing as religious instruction as it was in the old days. Today you have comparative religion as a study. And each child has to be exposed to all the religions plus all their rituals, be able to say their prayers. And it is wrong to say that one religion is superior to another. So by international legislation, United States human rights legislation, the law now reads, you shall regard all other gods as equal to me. Isn't that what the law says these days? By law? Isn't that how our children are trained? Let's have a look. Let's have a look at the news releases. Let's have a look at the battle behind the scenes. This is the Christian institution, the Christian influence in the secular world. New equality laws substantially restrict religious liberty. Today, Friday, this is in England, the government closes its consultation on radical anti-discrimination laws which substantially restrict the freedom of churches and religious bodies to employ staff who are practicing believers. Because by this very act you are saying that your religion is exclusive. No, we need a universal soup-religion. As I've said before, that means that you should be compelled to employ people from another religion so that you don't have this exclusivity anymore. Top, top legal academics have today accused the government of undermining religious freedom. They say the government has decided to implement a EU 
employment directive without granting the full range of safeguards which are permitted under EU law. All religious faiths will be affected. Professor Ian Lee of Durham University, a leading human rights lawyer, said today, the government regulations have all the potential to seriously undermine freedom of association for religious people. That they place the modern concept of equality over and above religious liberty. This is not a war that is a storm in a teacup. This is an international law. I have seen it in the universities where I have taught how our theology departments have been replaced with departments of religious studies. I've seen it how laws have been changed so that the name of Jesus may not be invoked even in public places. The second commandment reads, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children, upon the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Remember, this is the commandment that Rome removed. Why? Because if this commandment remains in place, you will never unite all the religions into a universal soup, because they all practice idolatry. So it's easier to change one religion than to change all of them. Let's have a look at the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, Article 1161. And uh, this is the Catechism which reinforces the Seventh Ecumenical Council of Nicaea on images. And it reads as follows. Following the divinely inspired teaching of our Holy Fathers and the traditions of the Catholic Church, well I've added there, there's no mention of following the divinely inspired teachings of the Bible here. We're talking about the divinely inspired Holy Fathers and traditions. We rightly define with full certainty and correctness, I wonder based on what? Reason and common sense, natural law of course. That, like the figure of the precious and life-giving figure of the cross, venerable and holy images of our Lord and God's and Saviour Jesus Christ, our inviolate Lady, the Holy Mother of God, and the venerated angels, all the saints and the just, whether painted or made of mosaic or another suitable material, are to be exhibited in the holy churches of God on sacred vessels and vestments, walls and panels, on houses and on streets. Boom. Thus says another Lord God but not the Lord God of heaven. So here we have a law which totally negates the law of God and hates speech, implements it on a universal level. Because if you were to say something against it, you are practicing this hate speech. Please note, I'm not saying anything against it, I'm just reading it. Some people try to make some of the occultic symbols into Christian symbols. Such as saying that the pentagram represents the five wounds of Christ. Or that the triangle is a symbol of the Trinity. And so you can get all of these things. I want to read to you Deuteronomy 
chapter 4, it says, Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spoke unto you in Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, lest you corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of a male or a female, the likeness of a beast that is in the earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. And if we carry on in chapter 7, Deuteronomy, the graven images of their gods shall ye burn with fire. Thou shalt not desire the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it unto thee, lest they be, be snared therein. For it is an abomination to the Lord thy God. Neither shalt thou bring an abomination into thine house, lest thou be cursed thing like it. But thou shalt utterly detest it, and thou shalt utterly abhor it, for it is a cursed thing. That's pretty straight language, wouldn't you think so? Why would God be so adamant about this issue? Because anything that is by touch is no longer by faith. And if I need something... To anchor myself, it's no longer by faith. Faith is a relationship. It's a relationship. Well, I'm taking you to the south of Germany, to this magnificent edifice where the presidents of the world get together, and I'll show you some of the symbols on the doors of the Marian shrine in this uh, Catholic enclave, and here on the doors you have the symbols of the zodiac, and the doorknob is a beautiful yin yang. So, all the signs of the Aquarius over here, most of them are used in occultism all the time. And uh, why would they put the yin yang there? I mean, what's that got to do with Catholicism? And what are all these signs of astrology doing over there? Isaiah 47 verse 13 says, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators, stand up and save thee from the things that shall come upon thee. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. And it shall not be a coal to warm at, nor a fire to sit before. This is no comfortable fire we're talking about here. All these stargazers and prognosticators and monthly uh, foretellers, fortune tellers, the Bible doesn't have much time for them. It says, take the word of God as it stands, believe his prophets and you will be established. But this sort of thing should not be the vogue of a Christian. And here it is all over this cathedral. Now what does this yin-yang mean? Let's just have a look at some of the laws regarding the yin-yang. There are seven laws concerning yin-yang. One of them is law number two, which reads, everything changes. That's fascinating. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Isn't that right? Whereas this law says we have to change. And if the times change, we have to adapt and we have to change. No, Jesus Christ hasn't changed. The second law, uh, another law is law number three at least. It says all antagonisms are 
complementary. This would make Jesus and Satan complementary to each other. That's very interesting. Number six says, the extreme of any condition will produce signs of the opposite. If you apply this to Christ, this would mean he is the extreme in goodness, mercy, compassion, etc. That he will produce signs of hate, injustice, unconcern, etc. This also would mean Satan can eventually become kind, loving, obedient, and so forth. And the Bible says, Woe unto them that call good evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness. So today, we are living under these signs of change. And we are being driven by United Nations legislation to go along with this change. So the first law of God has been negated publicly by universal legislation. It's gone. The second one falls in the same category. It's gone. Hate legislation is higher than God's law. What about the third commandment? By the way, when is God going to act? When they have made void thy law. Well, they're doing a pretty good job. Let's see how far they get. Third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord, of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. Now there are whole groups today who believe that we have the name wrong. We should actually return to the Hebrew names. And then you know, we should get it right exactly how it was. Is God concerned with pronunciation or character development? I don't believe there is any such thing as salvation by pronunciation. Because then we would have a problem on this planet. <laughs> but I'll deal with that in another lecture. So let's not talk about the actual name and how you say it and how you pronounce it because that has nothing to do with a moral character. That is a, a detail, a side issue. When it comes to the name of God, we are dealing with the character of God. You know, we talk about character assassination defamation of character. In Afrikaans, that is namskendung, which means to go against that which your name stands for. So you have this word name in there. It's very nice. So character assassination. So you shall... Not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now you know there's a whole body of people who take the name of the Lord upon themselves. They call themselves Christians. Don't they? And if you take the name of Christian upon yourself and you don't live up to the name Christian, are you then taking the name of the Lord your God in vain? Yes or no? Yes, don't call yourself a Christian if you don't want to live by it. Call yourself whatever you like. But 
not a Christian. Now, this is also the law of blasphemy, obviously. Obviously, you're not supposed to blaspheme God. And that means to drag his character in the mud or to say that that which pertains only to God can also pertain to me or to anyone else. That would also be taking the name of your Lord in vain. John 10.33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Mark 2 verse 7, Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There are two definitions in the Bible of what blasphemy is elevating yourself to the level of God and saying that you have the power that God has to forgive sins now there are two ways in which you can do this <laughs> It's fascinating and the whole new age movement is involved the new age movement elevates man to the position of God and very often perfectionism brings God down to the level of man. So you have the reverse coin of a very similar situation. The one group being extremely liberated and the other group being conservative to the extreme, basically doing exactly the same thing. So let's be careful that we don't fall into either of those two categories because Satan loves extreme. He is the father of this dualism, the sending two theories into the world diametrically opposed to each other, both of them on the wrong side of the fence. He does it beautifully in politics, have you noticed? <laughs> you always have to vote between two extremes and you never know, is, the, is it the pot or the kettle you're voting for? Well, Revelation 13 verse 1 says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast ride out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horn ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. Here it talks about the papal system in Revelation 13. For those who don't know about this, there's a DVD of mine which is called Two Beasts Become Friends. It's about Revelation 13 and you can look at that. So here is this blasphemous power, which is the papal power, because the same criteria in Revelation 13 we find in Daniel chapter 7, the little horn power. Verse 6 it says, And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. So he blasphemes the tabernacle and his name, the character of God. And the tabernacle stands for the plan of salvation he blasphemes the plan of salvation. How does he do that? Does he perhaps place someone else in the place of the role of the mediator? Does he provide another way in which you can climb into heaven? The Bible says if anyone climbs in by some other way than through the door and the door is Christ. I am the door and you have to go through me. 
Otherwise you don't come in. The thief climbs in some other way. Daniel 7.25 And he shall speak great words against the Most High. He is a pompous fellow. The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the Vicar of God. Ferraris Ecclesiastical Dictionary. He certainly qualifies. We hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty, Pope Leo XIII. God himself is obligated to abide by the judgment of his priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse or give absolution. The sentence of the priest precedes and God subscribes to it. Dignities and duties of the priest, volume 12, page 27. Certainly qualifies as a blasphemous power. And if you speak against it, legally, could it be classified as hate speech? Well, yes. So I'm not going to speak about it. I'm just reading it. <laughs> I'm not saying it. They're saying it. Here is another one. The poor sinner kneels at the confessor's feet. He knows he is not speaking to an ordinary man, but to another Christ. He hears the words, I absolve thy sins, and thy, the hideous load of sin drops from him, from his soul forever. Good grief. Well, there you have it. Here is a power that assumes both the prerogatives of God and the prerogative to forgive sin. And you may not speak a word against it because if you do, you could just be classified as a terrorist. That would be nice. could end up in some orange little suit with a short chain between your legs. Could just happen. Revelation 2 verse 9 says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And here, the word Christian was not yet invoked. Because that was only later that they started calling the Christians at Antioch. Christendom was a Jewish sect, if you like. So he's talking about Christians. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Christians, believers in the Messiah, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Matthew 59 says, In vain they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. These are important issues. Now, this is not only to do with Catholicism. If we look at the me methods and the modern methodology in all Christian denominations, and I'll be dealing with that in a later lecture, we will see that the same basic principles have been introduced into virtually every denominational field in the world. It's horrendous. The law of God is being made void by practice and by legislation, and it's being enforced. Now, if using the Lord's name in vain is blasphemous, how much more so preventing and forbidding its use? Forbidden to pray in the name of Jesus. Testing the faith. Clergy to protest at White House will ask Bush to reverse policy limiting chaplain's prayers. A group of clergy is planning to gather outside the White House today to ask President Bush to nullify military policies that forbid chaplains from praying in Jesus' name. 
According to a statement from the National Clergy Council, Christian leaders from various denominations will hold a new conference outside Lafayette Park, just north of the White House, to protest what the groups call an escalating crisis over chaplain prayer policies. Now, is this only a United States issue? Are these laws suddenly just appearing here in the North American continent? No. They are universal. In my country, you may not pray in the name of Jesus in a public venue. So you may not play, pray in a stadium. You may not pray this name in a multicultural school setting. And you may not pray it in Parliament. Parliament was always opened with a prayer. No longer. I had one of the professors at my university talking to me, crying. He said, all these years I could open in prayer and now I may not even name the name of my God. It's all gone by legislation. Well, you know, it's, it's an affront to someone of another religion if all of a sudden we invoke the name of Jesus. But are they allowed to invoke their deities? Oh, absolutely no problem. No problem talking about Buddha or any one of the others. No problem whatsoever. So it seems the third commandment is being internationally eradicated by universal legislation. What about the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that in the is and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Question, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Question, why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Answer, we observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, 1957, page 15. Okay, so we're not keeping the Lord's Day we're keeping the Catholic day, which they call the Lord's day, without one doctrinal, one verse in favor of their argument. Let's see what the Reformers used to say. Let's go back to the Reformation. Melanchthon, the meek and mild friend of Martin Luther's, quoting on Daniel 7 verse 25, and the spelling is not wrong, this is just old English, he writes, he, talking about Antichrist, he changes the times and laws that any of the six work days commanded of God will make them unholy and idle days when he lists. So if the Pope wants to, he can change a work day into a holy day. We call it that this day still, don't we? Can we talk about a holiday? Good. Or of their own holy days abolished, make work days again. 
So if they want to change it around, they can do it. God says, six days shalt you labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Roman Catholic Church can change it around. Or when they change ye Saturday into Sunday, they have changed God's laws, turned them into their own traditions to be kept above God's precepts. Sunday is our mark of authority. The church is above the Bible and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. Catholic record, September 1, 1923. So they say we change the Sabbath by our authority and we will determine on what day you will rest. She took the pagan Sunday and made it the Christian Sunday and thus the pagan Sunday, dedicated to Baal, or Balder, became the Christian Sunday, sacred to Jesus. Catholic Mirror, March 1894. Of course the Catholic Church claims that the change was her act, and the act is a mark of her ecclesiastical power. Cardinal Gibbons, in faith of our fathers. They go even further. The Bible says, remember that thou keep holy the Sabbath day. The Catholic Church says, no. By my divine power I abolish the Sabbath day and command you to keep holy the first day of the week. And lo, the entire civilized world bows down in reverent obedience to the command of the Holy Catholic Church. Father Enright, American Sentinel, 1893. Sunday is a Catholic institution and its claims to observance can be defended only on Catholic principles. From the beginning to the end of Scripture, there is not a single passage which warrants the transfer of weekly public worship from the last day of the week to the first. Catholic Press, Sydney. This one's really arrogant. If Protestants would follow the Bible, they should worship God on the Sabbath day. In keeping the Sunday, they are following a law of the Catholic Church. This is... Chancellor of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Protestantism in discarding the authority of the Roman Catholic Church has no good reason for its Sunday theory and ought logically to keep Saturday as the Sabbath. Not the creator of the universe in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but the Catholic Church can claim the honor of having granted man a pause to his work every seven days. This is fascinating. And then they throw out the gauntlet. Reason and common sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these alternatives. Either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday or Catholicity and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. Choose. And that is why there is this move to reintroduce Sunday. Pope launches crusade to save Sunday in 1998. He wrote this encyclical, Dies Domini, where he refers to his favorite little article. You remember that one? I spoke about it last night. Rerum Nuvarum. He likes that one, or he liked it. And then he says, therefore also in the particular circumstances of our time, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. Well, I thought I'd choose a web page 
in accordance with the country where I'm speaking. <laughs> so I went to workersrights.ca, which stands for Canada. Yes. Work time, weekly rest, and Sunday closing. Each week, workers are entitled to a day off to rest and relax and pursue leisure activities. Well, which day is that, do you think? Sunday. Now, there is no law yet which says that you may not. In some countries, they have just in Croatia decided to introduce that law that you may not. And some of the laws in Europe are changing and certain of the big trade unions have managed to shut down mega stores on Sunday. That has happened. But it's interesting that mega stores and malls have legislation that forbids closure on the Sabbath day. You're not allowed to close on a Saturday. You may close on a Sunday. But the law in most countries has not yet been enforced. So here's a hanging law. The Pope has asked for civil legislation to ensure that Sunday is kept. Sunday is the international banking rest day. And civil legislation forces employers to pay double if they have to work on Sunday. Here's a hanging law. Law number one, law number two, law number three, gone by international human rights legislation. Law number four, pending, hanging. It's been asked for, it's being agitated, they're asking for it. And uh, here's the whole story on Sunday, you can read it as your leisure. But the Pope was quite adamant about it. Pope John Paul II said in the Detroit News, a person who violates the sanctity of Sunday is to be punished as a heretic. That's marvelous. What was the punishment for a heretic? <coughs> Sizzle fits. That was the punishment. I wonder whether they want to be that hectic. Well, we'll see. Sunday Mass should seen, be seen as a joy, says the Pope, present Pope. We can't live without it, he tells crowded Angulus. Sunday Mass is not an imposition, but a joy and a need for Catholics, says Benedict. He's asking more and more and more and more about it. Then they brought out this magnificent 2003 declaration. Most Christians assume that Sunday is the biblically approved day of worship. The Roman Catholic Church protests that it transferred Christian worship from the biblical Sabbath Saturday to Sunday. And that to try to argue that the change was made in the Bible is both dishonest and a denial of Catholic authority. If Protestantism wants to base its teachings on the, on the Bible, it should worship on Saturday. Now we know that there are many Christian apologists who say, no, we can find it in the Bible. I mean, the disciples gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. And then they say, there it is. What does the Roman Catholic Church say about such theological uh, exegesis? What do they say about that? They say it's dishonest. Because you will read further and you will see they gathered together on every single day. And when Paul gathered together on the first day of the weeds, all the lights were on. 
Why? Because it was after hours, after the Sabbath, he had a church meeting. Poor old Eticus couldn't stand. He's droning and droning and droning, fell asleep. And I gather some people here also fall asleep from, from my droning. <laughs> and he fell from the window. Remember that story? Actually a support of the Sabbath rather than the support of a Sunday because on the daylight he had to march and walk kilometers far on the venerable day of the sun. So the Catholic Church is right. It's dishonest to argue that the change can be found in the Bible. But their big beef is that it's a denial of their authority. They say it will be so, and it will be so. Here we have this interesting floating law. But it's nice to see how they argue this issue. So today we have groups of people who come to the conclusion that because we are keeping another day, therefore we don't have to live in accordance to the law of God. And some go so far as to say the law of God has been nailed to the cross. Now I'd like you to think about that for a while. The law of God has been nailed to the cross. We are living under grace. By grace you are saved. That's true. And not by works, lest you should boast. Therefore they say the law is gone. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. We uphold the law. So here we have this interesting dichotomy. By the way, if you are under grace, what does that mean? When you are under grace. When you are under grace, you are being pardoned. Pardoned for what? For transgression of the law. Paul says where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, let's do away with the law. There is no law. Do I then need grace? No. Because without law, there's no transgression. Without transgression, I need no grace. So grace and law are complementary. And if you separate them, then you have need of neither. The two have to be together. Here is the theology of the modern world. These are the great Pentecostal leaders. And uh, they have written books on this issue. The Promise of Christ's Return, this book is called. And these are the leading figures within these churches. They write, The Old Covenant was annulled with the betrayal of Judas. Page 158. Well, let's not even go there. Those who still try to keep the law are not spiritually of age and have not yet received the Holy Spirit. If the law is still read these days, it must be for people that are not of age. That is for unbelievers. This is the only sense in which the law is still applicable today. Believers live through the Spirit and not under the law. Quoting Galatians 5.25 Believers that try to keep the law are in slavery. But believers that live in the fullness of the new covenant are free. Therefore it is dangerous for believers in the church period to be associated with the law. Churches that read the Ten Commandments on Sunday in the assembly, bring their members under the impression that they are still under the law and that they must try to keep the law. 
Christians who today try to keep the Ten Commandments hinder the work of the Holy Spirit and undermine the pure essence of the new covenant. The Bible says, here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So here we have a dichotomy, here we have a problem. So do we want to steal to be Christians? Do we want to lie to be Christians? Here is a tele-evangelist who has swallowed this theology hook, line and sinker. So what does he do about it? Let's watch him and listen to him. calls it a dragon and he chopped that first thing and he takes the law of God and he breaks it over his knee and he says no more and then he takes the pot of manna which stands for the body of Christ that will always be in an uncorrupted state and he smashes it he takes the rod of Aaron which stands for my high priest who intercedes on my behalf breaks it, throws it away. I believe the poor man is just deceived. I don't think he understands the plan of salvation. But that's the extreme of the theology, where it eventually leads. And uh, it's rather sad. Matthew 7.22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And this work iniquity is the Greek anomia, which means 
the condition without law because of ignorant of it, because of violating it, contempt and violation of the law, iniquity, anomia. So this question of anomia is not a new theology. It's an old theology that has been rearing its head over and over and over again. Today, whoo, it's fashionable. Do away with the law. But when you say, are you happy with being clobbered over the head to get what's in your pocket? Are you happy when they hijack you to get your car? Are you happy when your children and your daughters are raped? Are you happy when people are killed for a cell phone? Are you happy about No, 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 that's not what we mean. Well, what do you mean? Eventually it always boils down to the Sabbath, doesn't it? They're not keeping it, so they must find a reason to get rid of it. And what better way to get rid of it than to get rid of the whole law? Then you've gotten rid of it. But what have you got? You've got anarchy. Where no law is, there is no transgression. Where there is no transgression, there is no need for grace. Therefore, grace without law is a misnomer. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by keeping the law. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no man be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans three nineteen and 20. The law only tells us what, what is right and wrong. And it condemns us when I look in the mirror of the law. I say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips living amongst the people of unclean lips. Who shall save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. There is someone who can do it. I'm saved by grace and grace alone. But he wants me to come back into harmony with the law. Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. Magnificent. When you study this theology, the war is about the law. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7.12, don't get rid of God's law. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are under the law, but under grace? God forbid. I don't want to become a transgressor of God's law because I'm under grace. I want to say, thank you for saving me from this body of death. Help me to clobber the old man to death every time he tries to stand up. You're not going to be perfect. And you're going to fall and you're going to slip and you're going to slide. And if you're going to look for, to, at me for perfection, I suggest you go and chat to my wife quietly somewhere. John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Let's eat the word. Let's eat it. Let's eat the living manna that never rots. Not throw it away. John 14, 6, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He's the high priest. Let's not break the staff of Aaron and throw it away and say no more. We're dead if we do that. Psalm 119, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments are truth. How can you crush the truth over your foot and throw it away? 
Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and thy law is truth. Law and grace are two sides of a coin. There's the law in the New Testament. They like to say the new covenant annuls the law. The law is no more. It is an old covenant. It is a Jewish law. It's not a Jewish law. It's a universal law. Every single one of the Ten Commandments you'll find in the New Testament. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and Him only shalt thou serve. Matthew 4.10, Revelation 19.10. You can go through every single one of the laws of God and you will find them in the New Testament. There's no such thing as the law having been done away with. But this theology, this antinomianism, this having done away with the law of God is an old thing. Martin Luther already fought against it. And since we're talking about rekindling the Reformation, let's get back to the roots and away from this terrible confusion. Antinomians believe that Christians are free from the laws, Greek nomos, or morality by virtue of God's grace. Critics charged antinomians with licentious living, apparently popular amongst Gnostic sects. Antinomianism was revived amongst the Anabaptists by Johann Agricola, a one-time student of Martin Luther. So here was an Anabaptist. You know, they had so much truth, these Anabaptists, and then they allowed this fanaticism to come into their ranks and they hooped and howled and rolled and laughed. You know, it sounds like what's happening today. Who retracted his position after arguments with Luther and Luther's associate, Philip Melanchthon. Antinomianism was held by members of various sects during the British Commonwealth and it's being held by various people today. He is one of the fathers of modern antinomianism. His name was John Nelson Darby. And he had an interesting theology. He comes from what is known as the Plymouth Brethren. He originated in Dublin, Ireland, about the year 1830. Darby, a clergyman in the Church of England, renounced the church and assumed that all existing church organizations are detriment to Christianity. We don't need an organization. Who implemented organization? Who set up elders and deacons and all of these? This is God-given. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of order. And if everybody is saying, I'm being led by the Spirit hither, and the other one is being led by the Spirit thither, by the end you have the confusion we have in the world today. And obstructive with regeneration in the spiritual life. It was obstructive. Get rid of the church, he said. Moreover, they were confirmed antinomians. Mr. Darby would say, listen how far he went. If any man had anything to do with the law of God, even to obey it, he was a sinner by the very act. Wow! Of course, they strenuously antagonized inwrought and personal holiness as an utter impossibility, since the old man had a lease of the soul which does not expire till death. Yet they insist that they are perfectly holy in Christ up there, while perfectly carnal and corrupt down here in their moral state. This is religious confusion at its very best. 
Mr. Darby, speaking to the writer of this article, way back, so this is 120 years old, said, Jesus does not walk about in heaven dropping off fingers and toes, referring to the body of Christ, which is falling away. It follows that every believer once incorporated into Christ is absolutely sure of ultimate salvation. Once saved, always saved. What's the Bible say about that? The Bible says if the righteous man turns from his righteousness and does what is what? wrong, sinful in the eyes of the Lord, none of his former righteousness will be remembered. And if the unrighteousness, unrighteous man turns from his unrighteousness and does what is right in the sight of the law, none of his former unrighteousness shall be remembered. He shall certainly live. So there's no such thing in the Bible. The certainty is forever beyond contingencies. No act of sin, even murder, can remove us from our standing in Christ. Sin may obstruct communion and leave the soul in sadness and darkness for a season. But since, as Shakespeare says, all is well that ends well, sin in a believer is well since it ends in eternal life. Well, Mr. Darby, that's an interesting theology. This is the theology of the so-called Plymouth Brethren examined. Now, any sane man will say that that's ludicrous. So you're on the one hand in the world today, you have the antinomianism, smashing the law, getting rid of it, we're free. And then you have people saying, now hang on a second, that's ridiculous. Surely the law of God can't be gone. And so you have mega movements in the world saying, let's bring the law of God back. Can you see the two poles that we have in the world today? So we have the foundation for moral law. In 2003, Chief Justice Moore was removed from his position for standing for the inalienable right to acknowledge God. The former Chief Justice lectures throughout the United States teaching about America's history and our right to acknowledge God. And he serves as the chairman of the Foundation for Moral Law in Montgomery, Alabama. Here we go. Let's get the law back. And he writes this book, So Help Me God, by Judge Roy Moore, describes the providential events in Chief Justice Moore's life leading up to his removal from office, as well as providing a thorough explanation of separation of church and state and the true rule of law. The argument was, can the law be portrayed in a court of law? Or is that against the new law which supersedes God's law, which says that this is discriminatory? It, uh, it basically is hate speech because you're elevating one set of morals over another. So over 2,000 churches have distributed 50 to 100 yard signs in their communities. And the Supreme Courts have to decide if the law of Moses can stay in the courthouses or not. So here's the battle. One group of people saying, let's get the law of God back. Society is in chaos. We can't live without it. Let's show the world we want the law of God. T-shirts. Wherefore the law of God. Ten commandments. The law, the moral foundation. This is good. This is good. Interesting. Ten commandments weekend, May 2 to 4, 2008. Are you concerned about the attempts to remove God's moral law from society? You can do something about it. In response to recent court rulings against the public display of the Ten Commandments and the continual assault of a secularist humanist agenda against the tradition values, the Ten Commandments Commission 
has been created to restore and maintain the moral principles of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Interesting, now we've got a Judeo-Christian tradition. And the objectives? To provide a unified expression of our national commitment to divine prerogative. To restore the supremacy of the tenets, precepts and principles contained in and established by the Ten Commandments. To provide a global symbol and a national commemoration weekend that expresses our submission and commitment to the values in it and the value of the Ten Commandments. To create a mechanism for the Word of God to be restored in every aspect of society without violation of the legal system and to give opportunity for identification with millions who adhere to the supreme law of God. Two movements in the world. The one advocating, get rid of it, we don't need it, it's gone, it's been nailed to the cross. The other one said, give it to me, I need it. We cannot live without this moral degeneracy. Both of them have fallen into the devil's trap. Why? The one is practicing antinomianism, the one is, other one is advocating the law, but which law are they going to advocate for? God's law or papal law? Ah! They're going to advocate for papal law. They're going to advocate for the precepts as defined by the papacy, inclusive of the switch from the seventh day to the first day of the week. That's why we have the Lord's Day Alliance and all of these movements advocating the rest day. And they'll be squarely in papal law just as deceived as those who are without law. It's a horrendous world of deception. And the interesting thing is that this is called the Judeo-Christian culture. And the Ten Commandments Commission and its supporters, here is the man who is in control there, the president, he's Dr. Ron Wexler, and they have this annual Ten Commandments weekend. And, and what is he? He's a Jew. He's an Orthodox Jew and founder of the Ten Commandments Commission. This is a very strange occurrence. And so in Israel, they're now advocating, relaxing the Sabbath laws, and their banking laws and all of these have been shifted to Sunday. Interesting things happening in the world. Let's see what the reformers said about the law. Well, we already saw Melanchthon said that Rome has transgressed God's commandments because it shifted the Sabbath to Sunday. But it's interesting to see how the reformers argued. Luther in the front text, conflict between Melanchthon and Johann Agricola on the place of the law and the church had surfaced in the summer of 1528. Agricola joined the theological faculty in Wittenberg in 1536. He's the one who advocated antinomianism. We don't need the law. Soon after his arrival, anonymous documents circulated in the city arguing that the law belongs to the courthouse, not to the church. Luther challenged Agricola on the issue, and in, 19, oh, in 1537, sorry, they faced off in a series of six disputations that remain Luther's most important statements on the doctrine of the law. In the end, Luther and Melanchthon won the day, and Agricola backed off. 
Now Luther had a way of saying things where people weren't quite sure. Was he now for the law or was he now against the law? And so some people were saying he was against the law. He wasn't for the law as we see it. And then he put it unequivocally because he couldn't stand it anymore and he wrote, I wonder exceedingly how it came to be imputed to me that I should reject the law of Ten Commandments. Can anyone think that sin exists where there is no law? Whosoever abrogates, that means gets rid of the law, must of necessity abrogate sin also. So there's Luther's position. The law stands. Martin Luther says, He who destroys the doctrine of the law destroys at the same time political and social order. If you eject the law from the church, there will no longer be any sin recognized as such in the world. Martin Luther squarely in the camp of the law stands. Calvin, where do you stand? We must not imagine, said Calvin, that the coming of Christ has freed us from the authority of the law. For it is the eternal rule of a devout and holy life and must therefore be as unchangeable as the justice of God which it embraced. is consistent and uniform. Don't mess with the law of God, said Calvin. I like Dwight Moody. Now men may cavil as much as they like about other parts of the Bible, but I've never met an honest man that found fault with the Ten Commandments. That's quite nice. Infidels may mock the lawgiver and reject him who has delivered us from the curse of the law, but they can't help admitting that the Ten Commandments are right. They are for all nations and will certainly remain commandments of God through the centuries. The people must be made to understand that the Ten Commandments are still binding and that there is a penalty attached to their violation. Jesus never condemned the law and the prophets, but he did condemn those who did not obey them. And then he gives a couple of quotes. Dwight Moody, nicely on the side of the law. I like this man. I like him. Spurgeon always has, you know, extra flair. Spurgeon was an interesting theologian. He says, Jesus did not come to change the law, but he came to explain it. And that very fact shows that it remains for there is no need to explain that which is abrogated. Nice and logical. Thank you, Spurgeon. Assuredly, this was no abrogation of law. It was a wonderful exhibition of its far-reaching sovereignty and of its searching character. Once more, that the Master did not come to alter the law is clear, because after having embodied it in his life, he willingly gave himself up to bear its penalty. Though he had never broken it, bearing the penalty for us even as it was is written. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law and made a curse for us, and being made a curse for us. All we like sheep have gone astray, and then he gives all these wonderful verses. I am sure he carries on later. He would not, because the law asked only what it ought to ask, namely perfect obedience and exalted of the transgressor only that which ought to exact, namely death, and exacted from the transgressor only that which it should, death. Interesting. As the penalty for sin, death under divine wrath, therefore the Savior went to the tree and there bore our sins and purged them once for all. I like Wesley. Wesley, in my opinion, was 
absolutely spot on. Wesley says that the moral law precedes not only Moses or Enoch, but creation itself. He says it is an eternal law. It comes from forever. Even humanity, being first given to the angels and the expression of God's eternal pre-creation image and will. So, he says it's an eternal law. Wesley goes even further. And he says in this beautiful language of the New Testament, applies this directly to this moral law, calling it, an incorruptible picture of the High and Holy One, the express image of His person. Wow, that's pretty close. And then he writes, and listen to this, this is beautiful. I cannot spare the law one moment, no more than I can spare Christ. Each is continually sending me to the other. The law to Christ and Christ to the law. The height and the depth of the law constrain me to fly to the love of God in Christ and the love of God in Christ endears the law to me above gold or precious stones. Isn't that nice? That's terrific. Example in the Bible. A woman is brought to Jesus caught in the very act of sin. Her accusers are with her and they accuse and they accuse and they accuse and he writes in the sand. Fascinating. God wrote with his finger when he wrote the Ten Commandments. God wrote with his finger when he condemned in the time of Daniel, the nation that was transgressing God's law. And God wrote with his finger when bigots, presuming to be better than the law, accused. He wrote with his finger. I wonder what they read. And why they disappeared one after the other. And when they finally were gone having had their hypocrisy exposed in the sand, he turned to the woman and he said, where are your accusers? And they were gone. And then he said, neither do I condemn you. What's that? He places her under grace. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He places her under grace. And then he says, Go and sin no more. He places her under law. Wesley, you got it spot on. Isn't that so? I cannot spare the law for one moment, no more than I can spare Christ. Each is continually sending me to the other. The law to Christ. Here I am a sinner. How am I going to be saved? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christ sends her back to the law. The height and the depth of the law constrain me to fly to the love of God in Christ. The love of God in Christ endears the law to me above gold or precious stones. So Wesley's understanding of salvation went beyond Luther's focus on justification 
And he added the idea of regeneration, sanctification. I like that. You want to do away with the law of God? You will do away with Christ. The Bible tells us what the, the features of the character of God are and what the features of the character of the law are. The law is just and the character of God is just. Character of God, just, Romans 3, 26. The law is just, Romans 7, verse 2. The character of God is true, John 3, 33. The law is true, and so you can go down through these ones. The character of God is just, true, pure, light, faithful, good, spiritual, holy, truth, life, righteousness, perfect and forever. And the character of the law is identical. So if you get rid of the law, you get rid of the character of God. You cannot have the one without the other. So does the law stand, yes or no? The law stands. The law cannot be changed. And this fourth commandment hanging there is waiting for the final chop of the axe to be done away with. The fifth commandment, it says, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Well, what has society done with that law? Well, here's the Homeschool Legal Defense Association of America talking about parental rights. So this is the, the legal world, the lawyers, Dealing and grappling with world legislation on this issue. Parental rights, why now is the time to act? We should start with the question, why did the founders, talking about the American Constitution, neglect to include parental rights in the text of the Constitution of the Bill of Rights? Why didn't they do it? Answer, no one would ever have envisioned a form of government that pit, fit, pitted fit parents against the state over the right to make decisions concerning their children. Nobody would even have expected that. Have we gone so far? The UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, that's the UNCRC, the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child, and they write here, if this treaty becomes binding in the United States, the government would have the power to intervene in a child's life for the best interests of the child. Currently, the government can intervene in this fashion only by going to court and proving that parents have been abusive or have neglected their children. This means that whenever the UN-dominated social services system thought that your parental choices were not the best, the government would have the power to override your choices and protect your child from you. If this treaty becomes binding, all parents would have the same legal status as abusive parents. Because the government would have the right to override every parental decision if it deemed the parental choice contrary to the child's best interests. Specifically, spanking would be banned under the expressed terms of the UNCRC. Moreover, children would be required to be taught in a religiously tolerant manner. The American Bar Association, which supports the treaty, has already opined that teaching children that Jesus is the only way to God violates the spirit 
and the meaning of the UNCRC. Ooh. Now that's the United States of America where they're still trying to hook this onto that law, that law, this law, trying to sneak it in through Congress this way and the other. What about the rest of the world? They've done it, done deal, signed the UN Convention, they're packaged and sent to Hades. Let's read on. The ability to the homeschool one's children would not become a right, but a UN supervised activity that could be overturned if social services personnel believed that it would be best for your child to receive another form of education. These are not idle speculations, but the proven result of the UN's own interpretation of the treaty as they have reviewed other nations' compliance with the treaty provisions. In my country, law. In Great Britain, in Europe, law. Canada, I'm not so sure, but I would imagine law. This is fascinating. So by law, which is higher? Children's rights or parental rights? Children's rights are by international legislation higher than parental rights. So much so that if you do not comply, they can take your children away because you are breaking the law. Now which law is higher according to the Bible? If you're not abusive, that is. That's different. Which law is higher, according to the Bible? Parental rights. So I have the right as a parent, according to the Bible, to train my child as I deem fit in terms of the morality which I want to implant in that child. That is against the law today. So the fifth commandment has been made null and void. Let's have a look at the, the UK. This is the UK government periodic report to the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. This was July 2007. The United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child is an international human rights treaty that grants all children and young people aged 17 and under a comprehensive set of rights. The UK signed the convention on the 19th of April 1990, ratified it on the 16th of December 1991, and it came into force in the UK on the 15th of January 1992, and it states here in their official webpage, when a country ratifies the convention, it agrees to do everything it can to implement it. So we have a universal human rights law in direct contradiction to God's law. So out of the five laws we've discussed so far, four have been officially nullified by official UN human rights legislation. We need a religion to fit everyone. The churches and the world religions should indicate the unity within all facets of truth which will provide a universal platform one to which all men everywhere could give allegiance. Such a platform should include the truth that all men are divine and the truth that evolution governs the growth of the human being. Is evolution compulsory in schools, yes or no? Yes. Alice A. Bailey reminds us the same old formulas, the same old theologies, the same old interpretations 
are deemed adequate to meet man's modern needs and inquiries? They are not. The church today is the tomb of the Christ and the stone of theology has been rolled to the door of the sepulcher. Let's keep Christ out of this. We don't need him. So the fifth commandment is gone. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. No, no, they can't get rid of that one, can they? That's impossible. Well, here's an interesting report. It's called The Family Crisis at the United Nations, and it comes from the Family Research Council, recently published a collection of essays entitled 50 Years After the Declaration. That's human rights. The United Nations Record on Human Rights. In the book, nearly two dozen experts roundly criticize the recent social policies of the UN as they relate to women, abortion, children's rights. Teresa Wagner, the ed editor, charges that the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights has become a tool to advance abortion, homosexuality, euthanasia, and other obstructive causes. Matthew 1.23 Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. When she visited her cousin Elizabeth, the what jumped inside? The child. The Bible calls this growing individual a child. Let's redefine it and call it fetus. Well then it's no longer a child, it's a fetus. So according to legislation I can kill it. By the way, if a medical, may a medical institution hinder an abortion? May it deny an abortion by law? No. So by law, you have to, on demand, kill. The command is gone. I'm not even going to talk about euthanasia. The seventh commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, the law of adultery does not only apply to marriage, it also applies to the whole of sexual morality. And let's see where the world is going with this. Now, I don't know whether you know about the organization SIECOS, which is the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States. That's the official body. Now, this body embodies the legislation of the United States. So this is very classical. And we can use this, this program to show what is being implemented on a worldwide level in every single country in the world. So, let's ask SIECOS what their position is and then you have the international position of the United Nations. Parental involvement. While it is generally desirable for parents to be involved in their children's contraceptive decisions, the right of each person to confidentiality and privacy in receiving contraceptive information, counseling and services is paramount. Parents, butt out. You have no right 
over your child's sexual choices. Seiko's position statement. It is the position of Circus that the contraceptive services should be available to all, including minors, who should enjoy the same rights of free and independent access to contraceptive care as do others. It is the position of Circus that the use of explicit sexual materials, sometimes referred to as pornography, can serve a variety of important needs in the lives of countless individuals. Hmm, that's rather nice. Homosexuality. Religious groups and spiritual leaders can helpfully involve themselves in sexuality education and in promoting the sexual health of their constituents, including those who are gay, lesbian, bisexual. Professional guidance can assist religious leaders in how best to minister to their constituents regarding their sexual needs. It is important for religious institutions to minister and allow full religious participation to individuals who are gay, lesbian, or bisexuals, individuals have the right to accept, acknowledge, and live in accordance with their sexual orientation. Be they bisexual, heterosexual, gay, or lesbian, the legal system should guarantee the civil rights and protections of all people, regardless of sexual orientation. That's the law. In my country, a church, the biggest church in the country, by the way, just had the audacity to fire someone who turned out to be a homosexual. He took them to court. Who do you think won? Of course he won. Because the government has to enforce it. In fact, legislation goes so far that equity laws say that you have to employ people of all orientations or else you're not complying with the law. That means that churches should really employ a percentage of gay, bisexual, or whatever orientation, which is in accordance with the national percentage as it is in any nation. Fascinating. Abortion. Every woman, regardless of age or income, should have the right to obtain an abortion and at a reasonable cost. And parents, may you intervene in this issue? No, you have no right. The child's right supersedes yours. Pornography. Adults should have the right to access to sexually explicit material for personal use. Legislation, legislative and judicial efforts to prevent the production and distribution of sexually explicit material endanger constitutionally guaranteed freedoms of speech and press. Fascinating. How far are they prepared to go? Here's the hate crime law, federal hate crime bill. And an example of this could be a Christian preaching as, as counter-protest to gay pride marches. It wouldn't be against the law for gay rights activists to preach the values they ascribe to, yet Christian activists may be committing hate crimes by simply reading from the Bible. Indeed, this has happened on a level in Philadelphia. The Anti-Defamation League of Benibarit, fascinating, that's a <laughs> Masonic organization, creators of the current, current anti-hate legislation enforced hate laws against 11 Christians in 2004 preaching at a gay pride rally. Possible penalties, now please note, were up to 47 years in prison 
and $90,000 fines each. We're living in an interesting world. You bludgeon someone to death brutally, you get two years suspended for the next 500 years. And you're out on the street. You say something that is in harmony with God's word, you go to jail for 47 years and pay for the rest of your life while living in jail. This is fascinating. Fascinating. What about uh, your dear Canada? Human Rights Commission, a grave threat to religious speech. If you have never heard of the name Jessica Beaumont, I'm not saying I agree with this bashing. I'm not saying that. You are in good company. She's not a politician, a lawyer or judge, but she's at the center of a legal proceeding that will affect your right to quote the Bible. On October 27, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal issued a precedent-setting cease and desist order which, possessed, which forbids Jessica Bowman, who likes to write against gays on, on uh, web pages, from posting certain Bible verses on the internet. And even if this 21-year-old woman posts the wrong Bible quotation online, even if it is, if it is on an American website, she could face up to five years in prison. So the laws are different in the different countries, but they are the same in terms of their morality everywhere. You know, I was so disgusted to see how my university, I was so proud of my university. It came through such a terrible struggle and worked its way up to this magnificent structure where we had such fine students and all of these things. And then what do we do? We're going to give honorary doctorates to people who use foul languages and walk around with broomsticks demonstrating certain issues to prevent AIDS. You get an honorary doctorate for something like that and the fouler the language, the better. They confronted me once and asked me, why am I such a non-conformist? Why don't I wear the AIDS ribbon to show my solidarity? Every professor in the university is wearing it except you. Why not? In my country, if you're in government or you're a high official, you can see them with the AIDS ribbon. You watch our president on television, he'll have the AIDS ribbon on the side. And here I was, and I was contrary. I'm always the spoke in the wheel. And they were angry with me. So I said to my colleagues, gentlemen, it's not a good, good enough to wear an AIDS ribbon there to prevent AIDS. You need two AIDS ribbons, one there and one there. And perhaps you should put one on your back, and if you're wearing three, then AIDS will go away. <laughs> I think they realized I was being a bit sarcastic. And they were very offended. And then I said to them, okay, colleagues, I make a deal with you. The day they start preaching morality to counteract AIDS, I'll wear three AIDS ribbons. Safe as houses. I've never had to wear one. They'll never go there. They will preach 
every kind of debauchedness, but they will not go to morality to counter their problems. The Humanist Manifesto says in Article 6, in the areas of sexuality, we believe that intolerant attitudes often cultivated by orthodox religions and puritanical cultures unduly repress sexual conduct. The right to birth control, abortion and divorce should be recognized while we do not approve of exploitive, denigrating forms of sexual expression, neither do we wish to prohibit it. Isn't that fascinating? By law or social sanctions, sexual behavior between consenting adults, the many varieties of sexual exploration should not in themselves be called evil. Anything goes and the law upholds your right to whatever smut you're interested in. By law. Has the seventh commandment been done away with, yes or no? Yes. You're an outlaw if you quote the Bible on this issue. It's been done away with. So of the seven, six are gone and one is hanging by a thread. Let's have a look at the Eighth Commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Oh, come on, they can't get rid of that one. The Ninth Commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Nah, surely they're not going to get rid of that one. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. These are rock solid. Well, you know, the eighth one and the tenth one, they sort of go hand in hand, don't they? You're not going to steal something if you don't covet it. So let's discuss them together. And let's just briefly discuss the ninth one first. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Hmm. Isaiah 59 verse 4 says, None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. The Bible calls people liars. Jeremiah says, and they will deceive everyone his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies and weary themselves to commit iniquity. And he continues, for I have not sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name that I might drive you out and that you might perish ye and the prophets that prophesy unto you. The churches are going to lie to us. He's talking about the religious leaders. They're telling us, don't worry, the law's been done away with. Or let's keep the papal law. That's a lie. And they know it's a lie. They know it's against the Bible. Yet they are preaching it and they're going to make it law. So they're going to legalize religious laws. Which are contrary to the Bible and are therefore a lie. Bailey reminds us from their lofty position in the mystical lands of Shambhala. The legions of light... Remember, Lucifer means light bearer. Have announced that time is running out for humanity. They saw that our civilization is about to enter a new age of enlightenment and that all deserving souls should be ready to take the next step up in cosmic consciousness to a new spiritual understanding. God help us when this spiritual understanding is finally law. Former humanist of the year, Sir Julian Huxley, said, Human 
Nism's key note, the central concept to which all its details are related, is evolution. Evolution. Well, let's go to the question page that you find on the web pages. And one question that pops up all the time again. Question, why is evolution theory compulsory in schools and creation theory not? Well, perhaps we can get the BBC to answer. With creationism banned and evolution compulsory in virtually all US schools, let's make that all schools in the world. Many creationists have opted to withdraw their children from the state. Well, how many of the religious leaders? The Bible says it's the religious leaders that will lie to their people. How many of them believe it? Religious opinion. Most religious leaders continue to regard creationism as a superstition. The clergy letter project. That's a project to find how many clergy disagree with, with creation has reached a target of 10,000 signatories condemning creationism as superstition. Pope John Paul II regarded as a guarded support of evolution has finally passed on, but the expected anti-evolutionary stance of his successor has not yet materialized. But in any case, Pope John Paul II gave his blessing to evolution. Today, evolution is compulsory in every school, in every tertiary institution in the entire world. So the law now reads, Thou shalt lie to the public, to your congregation, and to the children in your school. And thou shalt say that God is a liar. That's the law of the world. Boom. The law's gone. That leaves me with the eighth and the tenth commandment to hang in there and say, is there any sanity left on the planet? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, or anything that is thy neighbor's. By the way, how much of that did Rome remove from its version? You're happy if you can keep your wife. Rerum novarum. I like this one. We've talked about it a lot and I read it to you. I'm going to just highlight some portions here tonight just to bring it back to mind. This is John Robbins' Ecclesiastical Megalomania. He says, one of the Roman Church's state's most influential statements is this Rerum Novarum document, which brought about feudalism, fascism, Nazism, interventionism and liberation theology. He doesn't like it, I don't think. I must say that we have to be very circumspect about this one. Thomas Aquinas said, remember, the possession of all things in common is the natural law. The possession of all things in common and universal freedom are said to be of natural law because to wit the distinction of possessions and slavery were not brought in by nature, but devised by human reason for the benefit of human life. Thomas Aquinas wrote no treatise on economics, but his thinking based on that of Aristotle is foundational for understanding the economic thought of the Roman Catholic Church. He writes, Because the goods of some are due to others by natural law, there is no sin if the poor take the goods of their neighbors. Thomas wrote, In cases of need, all things are common property, so that there would seem to be no sin in taking another's property, for need has made it common. <laughs> One of my neighbors just caught 
a laborer stealing stuff from his shed. And he went to him and he said to him, what the heck are you doing? And he said, um, I'm taking this. He says, what right have you got to steal it? He says, I'm not stealing, I need it. I wonder who taught him that. I think it was his pastor. <laughs> not only is such taking of another's property not a sin, it is not even a crime, according to Thomas. It is lawful for a man to succor his own need by means of another's property by taking it either openly or secretly. Nor is this properly speaking theft and robbery. It is not theft, properly speaking, to take secretly and use another's property in case of extreme need. Because that which he takes for the support of his life becomes his own property by reason of that need. In a case of a like need, a man may also take secretly another's property in order to succor his neighbor in need. Well, that's cool. So if I need something and I think Joe might use this thing as well, I could take it all. John Robbins writes, whoever needs property ought to possess it. Need makes another good another's goods one's own. Need is the ultimate and only moral title to property. Neither possession, nor creation, nor production, nor gift, nor inheritance, nor divine commandment, with the exception of the Roman state property, don't touch that, <laughs> grants title to property that is immune to the prior claim of need. And then he quotes Canon 1254, which reads, the Catholic Church has an innate right to acquire, retain, administer, and alienate temporal goods in pursuit of its proper ends, independently of civil power. You stay out of it, government. You don't own it. I own it. We had an interesting lecture last night, wasn't it? Who's the crown? The crown Templars. Who owns everything? The Roman state. Church. The church has an innate right to acquire from the Christian faithful whatever is necessary for the ends proper to it. I'll take anything. Here is the universal destination of goods. John Paul II's expression in his 1987 encyclical on the social concern. It is necessary to state once more the characteristic principle of Christian social doctrine. The goods of this world are originally meant for all. The right of private property is valid and necessary, but it does not nullify the value of this principle. Private property is, in fact, is under a social mortgage, which means it has an intrinsically social function based upon and justified precisely by the principle of the universal destination of goods. You own nothing. You may pay the rent. You may take care of it, but it has a social function and they have the right to take it whenever they want to. This encyclical also included a statement that might be viewed as a justification for armed revolution and wars of aggression. It quotes, this is John Paul writing, Peoples excluded from the fair distribution of goods originally destined for all, could ask themselves, why not respond with violence to those who first treat us with violence? And so we have the trade unions marching down the streets, demanding that prices come down. And they hand over a memorandum of understanding to the government. And the government does nothing. 
And so a month or two later, we have another rally marching down the streets and then kicking in the store windows, taking what they want. And how much intervention? Zero. We're having a universal redistribution of wealth. Now what is redistribution of wealth? It's taking from the haves and giving to the whoever you think is a have-not. What is that by definition in the Bible? Stealing. Yes, that's what it is. Gandium et spes, Vatican II Constitution, John Paul II. If anyone, if one is in extreme necessity, has the right to procure for himself what he needs out of the riches of others. Since there are so many people prostrate with hunger in the world, this sacred council urges all, both individuals and governments, to remember the aphorism of the fathers, feed the man dying of hunger, because if you have not fed him, you have killed him. This all sounds so nice, but he's called in the Bible the man of sin. He writes, all goods includes not just goods found in nature, but manufactured goods as well. He declared that all men must have access to those goods which are intended for common use, both the goods of nature and manufactured goods. No wonder you can only keep your wife. No wonder he took all the rest out because he says it's his. And he will redistribute it in accordance to his will. What are the most prosperous countries in the world? Protestant countries. Oh, we need some redistribution. Paul VI made this point in his 1967 encyclical on the progress of people. Each man has therefore the right to find in the world what is necessary for himself. The recent council, Vatican II, reminds us of this. God intended the earth and all that it contains for the use of every human being and people. Thus, as all men follow justice and unite in charity, created goods should abound for them on a reasonable basis. All other rights whatsoever, including those of property and of free commerce, are to be subordinate to this principle. Done deal. You have no rights. Is this being implemented by universal law? What does the United Nations say about that? Isn't redistribution of wealth their final goal by the year 2015? Isn't that the millennium goal that they want to achieve? Robbins Wright collectivists agree with Thomas that those in need are morally and legally justified in taking the goods of their neighbors. These Thomistic notions that private property is merely a construct of human reason and government and that need gives the needy title to the goods of others are the reason the Roman Catholic bishops in Brazil in 1998 pronounced that looting is neither a sin nor a crime. Fascinating. No wonder the Bible calls him the man of sin. Right, let's have an object lesson. I know that this doesn't affect you directly, but it certainly affects me and my countrymen. Here are two good friends. The one on the left over there is the president of South Africa, and the one on the right there is the president of Zimbabwe. He's much in the news today, and uh, he's being reviled and criticized and shouted at 
And uh, is anybody doing anything about it? No. And are these two gentlemen still buddies? Oh, yes, as they are holding hands here. And uh, there's the little AIDS ribbon. Can you see it? Even the president wears it. Who am I not to wear it? I apologize for my injustice, nevertheless. These two gentlemen are friends. They have other friends as well. As you can see, this man over here is very friendly with President Robert Mugabe. And he is the president of Iran, who might just catapult this world into the final cataclysm that they are so seriously looking for. Who knows? So the same power gives Robert Mugabe the right to do what he is doing in Zimbabwe. It's Roman Catholic law, remember? Now, are these people perhaps crown templars? Couldn't be, right? No, that, uh, no, that's going too far. That's going too far. Remember I spoke about the crown templars yesterday? And I showed you that the Knights of Malta are subservient to the post? to the Pope and that the Grand Master kisses the ring and I showed you that there is a new Grand Master of the Knights of Malta just appointed in 2008 and that the entire British royalty and the American royalty is associated with this crown which has nothing to do with the crown of England or Great Britain at all but is another crown and remember that I showed you the regalia of the crown templars and today it is worn by the hospitalers of St. John, the order of the Knights of Malta. That comes from the Catholic Encyclopedia and I remind you that the dear Queen is the patron of that organization in Britain and the Protestant side. So this organization has one aim and one aim alone. And that is to give their power unto the beast, universally. Now where do these gentlemen who are driving people off their land, doing nothing to prevent one farm murder after the other, and people are so desperate, and you know what? They are searching for God. And thousands and thousands of them are turning to God. Because they are feeling this practice run firsthand. And this practice run is coming to the whole wide world. And here she is speaking to a St. John's ambulance, all under the guise of charity, charity, charity. Charity is taking from those who have and giving it to those who don't have. No. This cannot be. President Nelson Mandela, are you a member of this fraternity? Are you also a Knight of Malta? Nelson Mandela and the Duke of Gloucester at the Knights and Dames Investiture on the 23rd of November 2004 at St. James's Palace when the Duke invested Mr. Mandela's Bailiff Grand Cross of the Order of St. John. He says he's not a Catholic, but here he receives the host from the Archbishop of Cape Town. And Roman Catholic canon law says you have to be Catholic to receive that. Clandestine, knight, 
doing duty for the dragon? No. Not Tabo Mbeki as well, the one who holds the hands of Mugabe. What a nice semblance. The Duke of Gloucester installs the president of South Africa, Tabo Mbeki, as Knight of the Order of St. John in 2007. The president, the ex-president of the United States, Bill Clinton, Rhodes Scholar, They're making them knights left, right and center. This is fascinating. So these gentlemen are all paying homage to the same power that the Prince of Wales is paying homage to. Now, Mr. Mugabe, do you have the same boss? Because you seem to have the same attitude as one of your predecessors. Is it possible? You even culture the same moustache. A little bit smaller, but, you know, hard to live up to that <laughs> magnificent <laughs> example set by this predecessor. Is this so? Who are you? The Independent. The Sunday Independent. Who is the writer? Dr. David Owen. Who was he? Foreign Secretary of Britain. What's he saying? Mugabe, from secret Jesuit to grieving father to embittered tyrant. And here he tells the story that Mugabe was raised and trained by Jesuits. Well, don't like them. Like Dr. David Owen, let's go to Zimbabwean Jesuit, the excommunication of Mugabe. And they're asking this Jesuit, Will Mugabe be excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church? He's doing such terrible things, allowing all this poverty and all this hunger and all these exiles and all these peoples driven from their land. Do you think this is a white-black issue? I have news for you. Let me go back to this one. President Robert Mugabe has donated a large sum of money to the Catholic Church. Father Oscar Wanter, a Jesuit missionary priest who has lived in Zimbabwe for over 30 years, said calls to excommunicate Mugabe were old hat and were unlikely to be heard. Why would they be unlikely to be heard? Why? Let's go to the Council on Foreign Relations. Well, that's a pretty powerful source, foreign affairs. It says, Mugabe was trained by Jesuit missionaries. These people are doing what they are supposed to do. Let's go to the African front. And here you have the policeman treading on the head of this poor civilian lying there. And it says there, repressive state power, the heavy jackboot smashes the civilian's head. Well, let's read Daniel 7.19. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was diverse from all the others exceedingly dreadful, referring to Rome, whose teeth were of iron and his nails of brass. Iron was the symbol of Rome. Brass was the symbol of Greece. And this Greek philosophy of natural law gives him the right to destroy God's law, which devoured, broke in pieces, stamped the residue with his feet. He's not satisfied with the destruction of Protestantism. He wants to stamp the residue, the remnant, with his feet. And people think in South Africa, and I travel through South Africa through all of it, 
South Africa has become more racist in thinking now than ever before. And I go there and I say to them, you have been deceived. You have been duped. You think this is a racist issue? Wise up. This is a religious issue. And I want to point you to the suffering of poor black Africans. Whose head is being smashed over there? Is it a white man? He might be killed and driven off his land, yes, but the black people are suffering. Let's take a black African country, Ethiopia. One of the most magnificent countries in ancient times. A nation of learning. The Bible speaks about the Ethiopians. What a magnificent nation. And what day did they keep? They kept the Sabbath of the Lord. They were Sabbath keeping. They were Christian. They believed in Bible standards and Christianity. And what happened? The Jesuits moved in and they divided the king. And they separated him off. And they introduced legislation. And they persecuted these people and tried to crush out the last residue of Christianity. Finally, the blood was flowing in that nation that the son of the king said, Please. Stay the massacre. I cannot stand it anymore. And they split into two factions. And in the Second World War, he wasn't satisfied with what he had achieved. It wasn't good enough. So he sent Mussolini, who was apparently fighting a war in the north. He sent him to Ethiopia. And they crushed that nation. And today, what do you have? You have little bloated children with Tears in their eyes. Millions of people destitute, walking around without feet. Their country turned into a desert. He will tramp the residue with his feet and he will stamp it. What did they do in southern Africa? They split the Zulu nation in two. Two factions and the blood ran in the streets. This is a religious war? This is not. A black-white issue. There is no salvation by pigmentation. I've said it before and I'll said it again, say it again. These are the knights working for a power to regain that same status and total ownership and control that it had in the Middle Ages, now just on a universal scale. Politics web. Farmers movable property now under threat. TAUSA. The proposed changes to the Land Use Management Act, which has been tabled in Parliament, underlines the fact that the TAUSA was not wrong in its evaluation that the new expropriation bill aims at targeting all farmers' assets. Your ass and your ox are gone. After all, she scrapped it out of a law with a reason. You think it's only your house he wants? No, your ox is gone. And your ass is gone. In terms of this new act, government will retain expropriated land, implements and stock in trust. Why? Because they don't own it. Who owns it? Rome owns it. The crown owns it. After all, it was an ex-Commonwealth country. 
and it falls subject to that territorial law that King John violated. So in terms of the new act, government will retain expropriated land, implements and stock in trust until it can be transferred to emerging farmers. And the irony of the matter is, will those emerging farmers own it, yes or no? No. They may work it. It's called a lease. They may work on it just as they worked before. It's the government and the corporations in partnership with the community that will possess it. Fascism, the old feudal system back on the planet. Rapport, newspaper, very prominent one. SA private property rights to end. When? July 2008. I want to tell you, my dear people, that what is being enacted there is the forerunner for what is coming upon the entire world. Don't think, because you live in a land of milk and honey, that it's not coming to you. It's coming. And you can see the winds blowing in the United Nations and where your neighbors are. We are at the very end. They have their target dates. I'm not setting dates. But how much of God's law have they done away with? Now look what they can take. It's not your house only and your farm and your implements. Any private property, not only land used for agriculture, can be a appropriated by the South African State Ministry of Public Works. Effectually, this marks the end of capitalist-style private property rights in South Africa. And all private property owners will have to accept any price offered to them by the government under this new law unless they are willing to engage in expensive lawsuits to get the market-related price for their properties. Forget it. Effectually, this new law thus effectively ends all private ownership rights in South Africa. It includes all properties countrywide. If the Ministry of Eternal, Internal Affairs wants land for housing previously disadvantaged residents, they can undoubtedly will expropriate land owned by churches, except of course, which one? Never mind. Banks, individual, homeowners, commercial business. Done deal. Finish. They're still fighting this law. They tabled it. It bounced a couple of times. They're going to rewrite it just like they're doing everywhere else in the world. We are on the brink of the end. And it's called the New World. Ooh, happiness. World Economic Forum. The World Political and Financial Elite. Here you have the powerhouse, the presidents, the ex-president of the United States, Bill Clinton on the one side, the one to make it popular with the youth. Did you see that little video last night from Al Gore where he spoke about these issues? And you had this girl dancing and throwing the starlets and we're waiting for this new heaven and this new morality and this new world and oh, it's going to be so wonderful. It's a nightmare. It's a time of trouble such as never was. And then the rich elite. This is a signal picture. World Economic Forum. The richest people in the world standing for business and corporations and this one representing Europe, this one representing the Americas, and the one in the middle, 
representing those to whom it will be redistributed, please. This is no act of charity. This is an act of enslaving. In my country, if you ask them, are you any better off than you were before under an equally disgusting regime? No. They're still living in tiny houses. They're still earning nothing. A couple of them are mega rich and the rest are mega poor. But they're free. Free to what? Free to work the land and not own it. Free to pay the taxes and the services and free to do nothing. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. Let's not be as conceited and puffed up as some of these. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and with greediness. We can see it everywhere. These tentacle hands are everywhere. They're secret little organizations and clandestine little Batman suits that they wear. Excuse me, I must calm down. <laughs> but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that he put off concerning the former conversation of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. I have no superior reason that is unfallen. I'm corrupt. I'm in need of salvation. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Let the world do what it wants. We're not going to climb onto soapboxes and say, let's fight for social justice, let's go to war, let's spill more blood than has already been flowing over the eons. Let's lift up our heads, let's take the Bible at its word, let's believe the Lord Jesus Christ, let's be true Protestants. Which means, let the minds clash, but keep the fist still. Didn't Martin Luther say that? And let's trust in the one who is coming to end it all, to end all injustice, to wipe away all tears, and to take us so that we can be where he is also. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.